Well, as always, church, it's good to be with you. If you're new to visiting, my name is Tyler David. I'm the downtown AM campus pastor, one of our preaching pastors here at the Austin Stone. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's going to be our text today. So as you can tell, we're taking a little break from the book of Exodus. We've been going through that verse by verse, story by story for some time now. We're going to pick that back up just so you know in 2016. Um, sometime in 2016, we'll get back into the book of Exodus. But with Christmas quickly approaching, I wanted to take some time today. With Christmas just right around the corner, the season happening, people drinking pumpkin spice lattes for days, like that's happening. I want to talk about Christmas a little bit. And I want to talk about, in particular, I want to spend today thinking through, thinking through why did Jesus come to us? I want to spend time just today for us together to say, why did Jesus even come to be with us? Like, why is it that God sent his son to be fully God, fully man, to be with us? What did he come to do? What did he come to accomplish? I wonder how you would answer that question. If you had to say, hey, here's what Jesus came to do. Here's what Christmas is all about. What is that something he came to do? Because he came to be with us, but he came to be with us to do something, to accomplish something on our behalf. What is that something? Well, I don't want to bury the lead. I want to tell you the answer from the very beginning. Jesus came to bring us the gospel. Jesus came, God wrapped himself in flesh to bring to you and to me the gospel. Now, maybe when you were thinking about how would I answer the question what Jesus came to do, maybe you said something similar, like you said something like, he came to love us, he came to save us, he came to teach us, he came to die for us. You gave some sort of answer like that. Those would all be right, true answers. But all of those answers are a part of and flow from this gospel Jesus was born to give to us. In Mark 1, we see this really clearly. When Jesus starts his ministry, that his life and ministry is about giving you this gospel. Mark 1, 14. Now after John was arrested, John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So this term gospel is what Jesus came to bring. And the gospel means simply means good news. It means good news. All of his life, his birth, Christmas, is about Jesus coming to bring us this good news that God's up to something. That God hasn't forgotten you. That God has a plan for his people, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that plan. Now, if you've been to the stone, the Austin stone, for any period of time, you've heard the term gospel before. You've heard the term gospel before. We use it a lot. And maybe if you're new or visiting or not even a believer here, we're glad that you're here. You maybe have heard the gospel too. You've heard that term used before. But just because you are familiar with the term doesn't mean you understand the term. Like the gospel, this term, it's one of those those things that you say that if you're forced to define it, you find yourself grasping at straws. That the gospel is one of those things, if I asked you personally to articulate, hey, well, tell me, what is the gospel? Just, Just right now, go ahead and tell me, like, what's the gospel? You find yourself kind of saying things, and you, it's one of those sentences, your, your inflection goes up as you say it. I think it's Jesus died for us. Like, you find yourself going up like, I think that he loved us. You're wondering, am I leaving something out? Did I say too much? Am I going to get kicked out? Maybe. I don't know. We'll see how, what you say. It's a joke if you're new. We don't do that. 
But it's one of those terms that you, when you're forced to define it, you find yourself thinking, I don't really know if I know how to articulate it. See, we confuse familiarity with understanding. We confuse familiarity with a term as understanding and grasping that term. So if, if Christmas is about Jesus being born to bring us the gospel, and yet we struggle to really understand it and grasp it, then it's important that we know it. But probably even more dangerous than that, probably even more, even more dangerous than that is how quickly we grow bored with this gospel. Like, for us as a church especially, we talk about it all the time. We talk about Jesus all the time. What's probably more dangerous for you and for me is how quickly this great news of God sent to us through his son becomes just ordinary, ordinary, everyday sort of news that we breeze past, assume, and don't talk about that often. How quickly we grow numb towards this good news of God. And the reason we grow numb towards it, the reason we grow tired of it so quickly is because that's the human condition. The current human condition is this. You give any human being enough time around something objectively great, objectively uh, awe-inspiring, objectively fantastic, and over time, a human being will become bored with that amazing thing. That's the current human condition. No matter how great something may be, give us enough time and we'll eventually grow tired of it and see it as commonplace and we'll eventually assume it. That's what you and I do with great things over time. I just got back from a vacation with my family to Colorado. And so we went up to Colorado and it's just incredible to be around the mountains and it's cold and there's snow. And I'm always, I mean, even this last week, I was looking at the mountains and I'm always just shocked by how staring at this massive mound of rock just brings peace to my soul. Like you find yourself in the mountains just having like very pensive looks like this, just, mm, you know, just taking it all in. You find yourself walking by streams, taking pictures. You're like, I don't do this in Austin. I'm like, look, a a creek. Like, I don't do that. But when I'm in Colorado, everything's majestic and everything's fantastic. Because there's something about this creation that I'm made to behold. Because there's something about it that God's speaking about himself through it. You've been there. You've gone to these great places. But what I noticed when me and my wife and our kids were taking pictures and just in awe and taking everything in, while we were doing that, do you know who wasn't doing that? People who live there. People who live there are not going, have you seen the mountains today? Move out of my way, tourists. That's what they feel like. They're locals. They're around it all the time. So things that are objectively fantastic and amazing and awe-inspiring and refreshing to be around, over time they lose their luster. Over time, they lose their majesty. This is precisely what happens with the gospel for us. There are so many of you in this room where at one time, you believed the gospel and it turned your life upside down, didn't it? There was one time when you, just the thought of this good news of Jesus Christ, just thinking about it brought joy and peace and satisfaction and hope. It brought all these things, but given enough time, what happens, we become gospel locals. We become locals in the gospel. We get used to being surrounded by mountains of grace, and it becomes old hat. It becomes something, yeah, 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 we get that. Let's move on to more sophisticated things. Like gospel locals like us, what we tend to do, when we see somebody who's new, and they're in awe of the gospel, we almost feel an obligation to say, you'll get over it. 
We almost look at them as like the, the new unsophisticated people. Oh, look at them. Isn't that cute that they're excited about the gospel again? They must be new to the church. We become these gospel locals who think of ourselves as sophisticated. We move past it. We move beyond it to more nuanced things of theology, to more uh, important things and actions we need to do. We move past it. We grow bored with it. And so what we do with the gospel in the church, we assume it. We assume it. We don't talk about it anymore. We move. We don't share it with people who don't know Jesus. We get into the morality they need to have. We don't talk about this gospel of God very often. And here's what happens. When you begin to assume the gospel, then you begin to confuse it. Then you find yourself saying, I think it's this. You find yourself saying, I I think it's that. And you start saying things that actually aren't the good news of Jesus Christ. You start pulling things out that are the good news of Jesus Christ. And here's what happens. When you confuse the gospel long enough, eventually you lose it. Eventually you lose it. Eventually it's not even in your worldview anymore. It's not in your conversations anymore. It doesn't affect your prayer life anymore. And you know what happens when you lose the gospel of Jesus Christ? You lose the joy of knowing God. That's how following Jesus becomes drudgery. That's how reading the Bible becomes boring. That's how loving other people becomes optional because you've lost the power of knowing God. It's in the gospel. It's in the gospel. See, Christmas is about more than just a baby named Jesus. It's about this baby named Jesus who came to bring us this good news. To bring you incredible news of peace and joy that you're not going to do anything to work for. God's going to do all the work. It's about what he came to do in this great gospel of his. So here's what I want for us today. I want us to take some time just looking at what is the gospel actually. I want you to have a clear understanding of what it actually is, and I hope you'll be in awe of it. I hope Christmas will be more than just cultural routine and more than just doing things you've always done. I hope it'll be a fresh reminder of, I can't believe God would do this for me. I'm praying that we would kind of be removed from this gospel local mentality where we're used to it. We're used to it. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 because it's one of the places in the Bible where you see a very succinct, clear definition of what the gospel is. So here's what we're going to find. I'm going to give you four things we're going to walk through today so you know. Four things we're going to walk through today about here's what the gospel is. The gospel tells us something about four different categories. God, humanity, Christ, and our response. God, humanity, Christ, and our response. The gospel has something to say about all four of these topics. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first Importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So Paul's writing this letter, just a brief context. Paul's writing this letter to a very dysfunctional church, a very dysfunctional church. There's all sorts of fractions and divisions among the community. 
There's sexual sin that's rampant and nobody cares about. There's lawsuits. There's all sorts of issues. And so what Paul says of first importance for this church is not practical instruction and wisdom, though they really need it and though God will give it to them. But he says of first importance that they understand what this good news is. Of all the things he could talk about to a people who have all sorts of questions and all sorts of issues and all sorts of quandaries, he says of first importance that you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's look at the first category. The gospel tells us something about God. The gospel tells us something about God. In this text, you find this phrase repeated, in accordance with the scriptures. In accordance with the scriptures. It tells us a lot about God. Look at verse 3 and 4 again. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Here's the phrase. In accordance with the scriptures. Verse 4. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Again, in accordance with the scriptures. That phrase, in accordance with the scriptures, is Paul referring to the Old Testament. It's important for you to know that when he's writing this letter, the New Testament's still being formed. The New Testament's still being written. So when he talks about the scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. So he's saying that everything Jesus came to do, everything Jesus was here to do, was in line with and fulfillment of and in accordance to all that God had said and all that God had done in the Old Testament. Jesus is fulfilling everything God had already been doing. Jesus is not the first time God is working. It was just that what God had been planning everything towards. And so here's what you find in the Old Testament. We could cover a lot of different things with the Old Testament, but here's what you learn primarily about God. You learn about his character. You learn, here's what God's like. He's holy. He's good. He's right. He's true. He's merciful. He's kind. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's just. You read the Old Testament, God is revealing himself and what he's like again and again and again. We've seen it all throughout Exodus. But here's one thing for us to understand. This God has no beginning and no end, and he made everything. And he made you and every human being to do what? To bear his image. You were made as an image bearer. And so God begins to speak to these image bearers in the Old Testament. And he tells them all sorts of things. You've read the Old Testament maybe before. There's all sorts of commands, all sorts of things they should do and should not do. But here's what's behind all of those commands. Do do you know why God gives you commands? His heart is this. He tells you what to do and he gives you instruction on how to live because he wants you to trust and treasure him above all. Behind all of his words, behind all of his commands is a heart for you, his image bearer, his creation, to trust and treasure him above all. You can see this from the very beginning of the Bible. One of the very first commands, it's very clear to us that God's intention in giving us commands is so that we would trust and treasure him above all. Genesis 2, 16 is one of the first commands God gives Adam. Look at what he does. This is before sin. He says, and the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God tells Adam, you can eat every tree except one, except one. And if he eats this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we won't get into all that that means. But here's what you need to know. If he eats of that tree, he will die. So you have this tree that has, that's dangerous, right? That has devastating consequences. So you would think 
that when God puts this tree in the garden, he put it in a place that Adam never went. Right? You would think that, okay, here's this tree that could kill Adam if he eats it. So he should put the tree somewhere in the garden he'd never go. He should probably put it behind some cactus or something. Adam has no clothes. If you want to get to that tree and go to some cactus, you better really want it, right? Why not put it somewhere where he would never be around it? But what's fascinating is that God puts this tree, this dangerous tree, this tree with devastating consequences in the middle of the garden. A couple of verses before, verse 9, chapter 2 of Genesis. It says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst, in the middle of the garden, and the tree of, no- and the, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The fruit that Adam cannot eat is on a tree he passes by every day. It's in the middle of the garden. God didn't put it somewhere where he'd never find it. He put it in the middle of the garden, right in the middle. Now, why? First, why would God even make a tree like this? Like, why even make this as a possibility? Like, why put it in the garden to begin with? And then if you're going to put it in the garden, why put it in the middle? Because God wants Adam and he wants Eve and he wants us to trust and treasure him above all. He wants every day for Adam to walk by that tree and go, I trust his word. He told me not to have that. Everything is mine. It's the one thing I can't have. I trust his word. He wants every day for Adam to walk by and say, it's mysterious. I don't know all that it means, but he's better than some mysterious thing I can't have. The goal and the command is that God wants his people to trust and treasure him above all. If you're you're new to the faith, you have to know following God is more than just do's and don'ts. God does have things you should do and things you shouldn't do and there are commands we need to follow them. But you know what his heart is in all of them? It's for you to trust his word and treasure him more than all of his creation has to offer. That's what he's doing. You have to understand that about God. That's what he's like. He wants to be supreme in our lives. So that's what the gospel tells us. When the gospel says, in accordance with the scriptures, it's assuming a lot about God. And that's what God is like. He's holy. He's good. He's our creator. And he made us to trust and treasure him above all. That's about God. Secondly, the gospel tells us about humanity. Look at verse 3. Verse 3. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received... That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So here's what we learn about humanity. We're these image bearers, but we have this thing called sin. We have this thing called sin that Jesus had to die for. So when you look at the Old Testament, again, in accordance with the scriptures, God tells us, here's what you should do, here's what you should not do. And this thing called sin is saying, well, the things I should not do, I'm going to do. And the things I should do, I'm not going to do. But what's behind all of that sin? If behind, follow me on this, if behind all of God's commands is a desire for us to trust and treasure him above all, then behind all of our sin is a desire to not trust and treasure him above all. The root of your sin is because you don't want to trust and you don't want to treasure him above all of his stuff. The root of sin is I'd rather have your stuff than you. That's the root of sin. And so the first sin ever committed and every sin after that is rooted in a refusal to trust his word and treasure him. So you probably know how the story of the Garden of Eden ends. They eat 
the fruit they're not supposed to. They commit the sin of eating the fruit they're not supposed to. Now, I find it very, very insightful, very, very insightful that the first sin ever committed is eating a piece of fruit. Think about that. The first sin ever committed is not Adam lying to Eve. The first sin is not Adam belittling Eve. The first sin is not Eve being selfish. The first sin is not some, what we would think, an egregious act. The first sin is simply a couple eating a piece of fruit. Now, if you and I, let's say we're in the garden and we're just on the sidelines just watching this whole thing go down. We're sitting there watching, we see them eat a piece of fruit, and we see death come into the world. You and I would probably think, that's a bit of an overreaction. Doesn't it feel that way? You're looking at it, you're going, okay, how does eating a piece of fruit warrant such devastating consequences? How could death be the penalty for eating a piece of fruit? Which well, because of the relationship God has with Adam and Eve and has with us. It's because of the, of the relationship he wants with us. See, he made us to have a relationship of love. A relationship of trusting and treasuring him. So like in any relationship of love, in any relationship of love, there are particular things that to an outsider may look benign, may look like it's not a big deal, but to those within the relationship, it's very painful and offensive and dishonoring. In a relationship of love, there are certain things that to an outsider, if they looked in and they saw, they would think, why is it such a big deal to you? But those in the relationship know, based on what's been shared, based on expectations, based on things we know about one another, that thing that looks benign, that looks like it's not a big deal, is actually a very massive thing. A very massive thing. There are particular things in my marriage that I've said or I've done that you would look at maybe as an outsider with no context and go, well, Tyler, that's not that big of a deal. I'm like, I know. That's what I think. You would look at it and go, well, why is Lauren reacting the way that she is? She, she's overreacting, Tyler. You're a great husband. She's lucky to have you. And I would say you are absolutely 100% right. But that's because you don't have enough information. If you had enough information, then you would see, oh, wait, Lauren asked you not to do that? Oh, Lauren said that hurts her when you do that? Oh, you're wrong for that. Like that, like that, it would shift really quickly when you got more information. Because in a relationship, that context means a lot. What, have, what has been shared, what has been said. So something that looks really benign can be a really big deal. Let me give you an example right now from my marriage. Toothpaste. Toothpaste right now is a hot button topic in the David household. So Lauren has repeatedly, so we have two sinks in our bathroom. She has repeatedly asked me to put the toothpaste in between the two sinks. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Here's why. Because she always brushes her teeth in my sink. You want to know why? Because there's always stuff in hers. There's always hair dryers, clothes, people, babies, something there in the sink. So she always brushes her teeth in my sink. So I think, what's the big deal? Put it by my side. Who cares? Well, then I do that and she gets hurt and she gets frustrated and she feels like I don't listen to her and I wasn't paying attention. And then she goes on and on about, I'm thinking, who really cares? But it turns out telling someone you love that's stupid to be upset about doesn't work really well. (laughs) Turns out leading with that, not a good tactic, not a good idea, little marriage advice. But here's the deal. If you were an outsider, you would think it's just toothpaste. 
kind of what I think, but you would think it's just toothpaste. But what has my wife shared with me? I would like for it to be like this. And so I don't have the prerogative to tell her it's unfair for you to be hurt by that. You don't have the right to be hurt. In a relationship of love, we understand you need to listen to that person and they help you know how they want to be loved. Well, if that's true in our relationships, how much more so with God? How much more so with God? We don't get to tell God that sin isn't that big of a deal. You need to chill out. No, God gets to tell us what hurts him, what, what offends him, what dishonors him, what disrespects him. Sin is not defined by how harmful we think it is. Sin is not defined by how harmful we think it is. Sin is not a utilitarian thing where if it didn't hurt anybody, then it's no big deal. No, sin is primarily against God, and he tells us, here's what hurts, here's what offends, here's what disrespects. And this is why, that's the nature of sin. So that's why something like eating a piece of fruit can bring devastation. Why? Based on what's been shared, based on expectations, based on the nature of that relationship. So that's why things like anxiety can be sin. Have you ever thought about that? You're thinking, why why is it a big deal if I'm just anxious and I'm worrying and I'm fretting over a situation? Because God wants a relationship where you trust and treasure him. And when I'm anxious, you know what I'm saying? You can't be trusted. God, you cannot be trusted with my child and their schooling. You can't be trusted with my job and my performance. You can't be trusted with my life. So I'm going to be worried and I'm going to fret and I'm going to be anxious. Something like anxiety can be sin because God wants to be trusted above all. That's why things like just saving money and never giving anything away, maybe you're even saving for a good thing, but you're not generous at all with your finances can be sin. Why? Because God wants you to treasure him above all. He's not just interested in you just coexisting with him. He wants you to treasure him above all, even more than all the things that money could give for you. All the comforts, all the platform, all the prestige, all the so-called security. He's saying, no, no, I want to be treasured like that. So he's hurt, he's offended. Sin is not just particular immoralities you commit and external actions that you deem inappropriate. Sin is whatever God says it is because it's primarily against him and he tells us what hurts and offends and disrespects him. So our sin is us saying, I don't want to trust you. I don't want to treasure you. That's why you have sin and and you feel like you're a pretty good person. That's why people can do nice things to other people and still have sin because it's primarily against God. So the gospel says something about God, something about humanity, and then it tells us something about Christ. Look at verse 3 through 5. 3 through 5 again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. The Jesus we celebrate during Christmas, he came to do what? Die, be buried, and rise from the dead. Now notice again in that text, it says he died in accordance with the scriptures. So his death, to truly understand it, you have to understand the Old Testament. You have to understand that everything he did, his death, was according to the will, the word, and the standards of God the Father. So when you read the Old Testament, here's what you find. We we read the Old Testament, we think God's really angry in the Old Testament, 
We think he's angrier than, like, he's like Jesus' dad. He's like, hey, I'm sorry about my old dad. He's really upset and really cranky. Like, that's my dad, sorry. But what you see in the Old Testament is that there's this people that has wronged God, offended God, belittled him, left him, cheated on him. And you know what he keeps doing? He keeps wanting to be around them. The Old Testament is God saying, I have no reason to be around you, but I just want to keep being around you. I want to show you what I'm like. But they've sinned against him, so he can't just be around them casually like it's no big deal. So he sets up this sacrificial system for them. He sets up this sacrificial system to teach them how to trust and treasure him. And so when you read like Leviticus, you know, that book that you try to read and you skip the Gospel of John real quick, that book, like, oh, I feel called to a different book of the Bible all of a sudden. That inspired work of God, that Leviticus book, it's outlining for the people of God this basic premise. Sin against God deserves, produces, requires death. That's what it's saying. That to wrong this God who made you to be in relationship with him, to trust and treasure him above all, to wrong him, to offend him, to belittle him, to disrespect him, requires death. And so God says, but I still want to be around you, so here's what I'll say. Either you will die for your sin or an animal will die in your place. That's the sacrificial system. Either you will die or an animal will die in your place. And so he gave all these criteria for the type of animal that could be sacrificed. It couldn't just be any animal. Here are the two basic qualities of the animals that were sacrificed. They were innocent and they were costly. They were innocent and they were costly. The animal who would, that would die for the sin of an Israelite didn't commit that sin. Or this animal that's dying is innocent. They didn't wrong God. It didn't offend God. The Israelite did, but the animal's the one dying. It's innocent. And also it's costly. What you'll see in the Old Testament a lot, especially in Leviticus and these where the sacrificial system is set up, you see this phrase uttered a lot. It has to be without blemish and without defect. Without blemish and without defect. What it's saying is you can't offer up one of your animals that's about to die. You can't offer up one of your animals that's one of your lesser ones that's pretty sick. No, this is an agrarian society. Remember that. So to have a lamb in the prime of its life, to have a goat in the prime of its life, without blemish, without defect, is a very valuable commodity to you. And God's saying that's what has to be sacrificed. It can't be your dregs. It has to be your best. It has to be your best. And so when Jesus is dying on the cross, he's dying according to those standards. He's dying according to those realities. Every animal, every animal that died never paid for a sin. Hebrews 9 tells us the blood of bulls and goats cannot deal with sin. Every animal didn't deal with sin. It was just getting us ready for the real payment for sin, the death of Jesus Christ. And his death, he was innocent and it was costly. Think about this. Like every animal, Jesus is dying for something he didn't do. But here's why he's better than just some random animal. That animal, though it's innocent, had never obeyed God. That animal, that lamb, that goat, it never obeyed God. It was innocent. It didn't do anything wrong, but it hadn't done anything good either. But Jesus obeyed perfectly. Jesus came and he lived this life where every moment of his life, he trusted and he treasured God more than anything. So for every moment, you have a perverse thought. Jesus 
didn't have a perverse thought, but also he only had pure thoughts. For every time you were self-righteous and angry and thought, how dare they treat me that way? Jesus was compassionate and kind and merciful and gracious. He wasn't just innocent, he was righteous. He wasn't just not guilty of sin, he possessed all perfection and glory with God. And he says, that's the Jesus who died, the innocent for the guilty. But even more than that, it was costly. God could not have sent us a more costly sacrifice than his son. There's nothing more valuable than his own son, who the father has known from eternity past. He says, that's the one who's going to die for people like you and people like me. He was innocent and it was costly. That was what his death was like. But then it says what? He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and then he was raised. He was raised from the dead and appeared to his disciples. His resurrection is just as important. It's just as crucial. Because often when you and I talk about the work of Jesus, we tend to only focus on his death. We tend to say, he died for sins. That's true, that's right. Without it, we would not be saved. But also his resurrection is just as crucial, as important. Here's why. Every person dies. Right? Every person dies. There is yet to be a human other than Jesus who death has not defeated. Every human dies. It's one of the saddest things about being a human. No matter how great your moments are, this death thing is still coming for you. And so if Jesus goes to the cross and even shouts at the cross that he loves us and he's for us, but if he stays dead, then his death was like every other death. If Jesus stays dead, then his death for people was like every other death. At best, his death was a noble guy who was a good teacher who loved some people and then he died. Even if he gives us letters of instruction on how to live, if he stays dead, he accomplished nothing. He accomplished nothing. If he stays dead, his death was like every other untimely death for a guy in his mid-30s. But the resurrection proves, the resurrection proves his death was not like every other death. The resurrection proves that his death was utterly unique and his death was actually effectual and effective to do something. That his death was accomplishing something. When everyone thought he's weak, he's done, God has forsaken him, was actually the place where God was most pleased with him. His resurrection shows, no, the, re- the cross actually dealt with your sin. The empty tomb proves to you, oh, I don't have to work for God to love me. The resurrection proves that that was even the death of death itself. That the cross was effectual, powerful, and accomplishing something. We know that by his resurrection. We did not need for Jesus to be born to be a good guy and just teach us some good things. We did not just need him to come and give us a very special time of year. We felt really warm and cozy and got to be around family. We didn't just need that. We needed him to be perfect and we needed him to die. We didn't just need him to die so we knew that our sins were forgiven. We needed him to raise from the dead so we could know what? I'm not going to stay this way forever. His resurrection says you won't stay the way that you are if you're in Christ. You're going to change one day. 
and your resurrection will be like his. The gospel tells us something about God, about humanity, about Christ. And lastly, our response. Look at verses one through two. One through two, we're almost done. One through two, First Corinthians 15 says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For the gospel to apply to a person, it has to be received by that person. For all that God is doing through Jesus, for it to apply to you, it has to be received by you. For anyone to benefit from all that he did, you have to receive the gospel in faith. See, it's believing that Jesus alone can bring you back to God is what causes God to act on your behalf. That's how it works. His work does not apply to you when you do good things. His work does not apply to you when you're kind to another person. His work does not apply to you just because you attended a church service. God is not moved to love you by anything other than the work of his son. But in the work of his son, you get to receive all of his love, all of his favor, all of his blessing forever. And all you have to do is trust and treasure his gospel to receive it in faith. Now, it's really important to note the kind of response it requires. Because the gospel that doesn't demand a response is no gospel at all. The gospel that doesn't demand you to respond to it is no good news at all. Good news requires a response. And the type of response the text tells us is an ongoing response of faith. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. Notice how it talks about our faith. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, past tense, you received it back in the day, in which you stand, present tense, You currently stand in it. And verse two, by which you are being saved into the future, what? If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Notice the text says the gospel keeps saving you. It keeps saving you. You stand in it. You continue in it. It's how you begin your relationship with God, and it's how you keep your relationship with God. Your good days didn't get you in, and your bad days won't kick you out. Your works didn't make you lovable, and they don't continue to make you lovable to God. Only the work of the Son does that. It has to be an ongoing faith. An ongoing faith. Hear me very clearly. It's not a potential faith. A lot of us like to make deals with God and say, okay, I don't know if I believe quite yet, but I promise one day when I'm older, I'll really believe that potential faith is not what he's talking about. It's not an inherited faith. It's not, well, my family has always generally kind of believed things like this. I'm not sure that I do, but I'll just think it kind of applies to me. It's an ongoing faith, not an inherited one. It's not even an historical faith. It's not even an historical faith. You should not take solace that one time, a long time ago, you prayed this prayer to receive Jesus, but truthfully, you haven't believed it for a long time since then. He says it's an ongoing faith in the gospel today that gives you all the blessings of being a son and daughter of God. Now, what's incredible about this faith, your access to the gospel 
is not dependent on the strength of your faith, just the existence of it. This is so crucial for you to understand, especially if you're a believer and you're going through a tough season. Your access to all of God's grace is not dependent on the strength of your faith, just the existence of it. God is pleased to honor even the weakest and most faint belief in his son because the gospel is about the strength of God, not the strength of our faith. This is why the gospel always draws people who feel really weak and helpless. People who feel like... I can't get my life under control. People who feel like I could never do enough. People who feel hopeless. Those people tend to come to the gospel because it welcomes even the weak. People who tend to roll away from Jesus are those who feel pretty strong and competent, who think, I don't really need him anymore. He was good in the beginning, but I've gotten strong now. I can move on. The response that God requires, the gospel requires, is one of ongoing faith. See, the the celebration of Christmas, it's not just a baby being born. It's this Jesus bringing us the gospel. This gospel about God and humanity and Christ and our response. And so for some of you, some of you, this is a large room. For some of you, I'm sure this may be one of the first times in a long time you've really understood the gospel. One of the first times in a long time, or maybe ever, where you've gone, okay, I think I understand what it is, and I'm kind of interested in it. Like, you you thought the gospel was, okay, the gospel is like a type of music, maybe, I don't really know. You you thought maybe it was just like kind of doing some good stuff, and that's what really makes me godly. Or that's how I'll get good, I'll I'll start serving in the community a lot, and that's what the gospel is. Maybe it's one of the first times you've ever really thought, oh, it's all about what God has done. And maybe it's one of the first times you really understood the God who can deal with all your anxieties, the God who can deal with all of your insecurities, all of the chaos in your life, all of the sins you've committed, the forgiveness that you need, the God who can give that to you, he gave everything so you could have it. If this is you, do not assume, well, I feel like I want to receive this gospel, but I'm, it'll mess up my life. It'll like, ruin the things I really love. Probably, but I'm telling you, you won't find anything better than this gospel. It gives life to you that you've never known, and it gives life to everything that you desire more than you'll ever understand. If that's you, don't wait another day. Receive it today. And all it is is saying, God, I want to bank on Jesus. It's not sophisticated. It's not complicated. It's I have a lot of sin. He doesn't. I'm trusting in him. If that's you, talk to whoever brought you, talk to a pastor today. But for the rest of us, a lot of us, here's what's happened. If you're thinking, okay, I believe the gospel, I love Jesus, I want to follow him, I think most of us have probably become gospel locals. I really think the majority of us have become, and I'm in this category, we've become gospel locals. We've been living around these mountains of truth and these peaks of joy and these streams of forgiveness for a really long time. And we're around it a lot and we hear it a lot, but truthfully, it's been a long time since you were really in awe of the fact that God could do this for you. It's been a long time since you didn't need external stimulus to genuinely love God and enjoy him. It's been a long time since you just thought about the fact that Jesus did this for someone like you that moved you that stirred anything up in you. 
And the reason this has happened, the reason following Jesus is feeling more and more like drudgery and more and more burdensome is probably, probably because deep down you started to believe the lie that you're loved because you obey. Deep down, deep down, you started to believe everything I have is contingent upon me serving, contingent upon me being a good Christian. And that's why I have all the stuff that I have and have the family that I have, have the life that I have, have the joy that I have. And what that does is slowly choke it out. Because when you've deserved everything you've received, then life's just a paycheck. You don't get happy over paychecks. You, you deserve paychecks. And if all life is, is you working to earn something, then there's not a lot of joy. There's a lot of frustration when you don't get what you think you deserve. But if all of your life is grace, and all of your life is a gift, and God has loved you from the very beginning until now because of the work of his son, all of life is a gift. I'm about to do Christmas. Christmas with kids is amazing because they remind you, when you get gifts, you get excited. Kids come running down those stairs and they remember, I got no money and I got a lot of stuff. This is amazing. <laughs> it's clear to them, I have no ability to get this thing and yet it was given to me. That's why Christmas with kids is so fun because with adults, you're thinking, I could have bought that for myself. I don't need socks. <laughs> you think, great. But that's what life is like when you forget about the gospel, Christian. It becomes a series of paychecks you think you deserve, and when you're missing one penny, all you have is frustration. But when life is genuinely what it actually is, God didn't need you, he wanted you. He didn't need us, he wanted us. He sent Jesus for us and he did all the work. Then your health is a gift, then your family is a gift, and God's love to you is a gift. And you can receive it as such and think, even on my worst days, I'm loved. So if that's you and that's most of us, do you know the response is to realize, okay, I am a gospel local. I've been around this stuff and I don't really get excited about Jesus anymore. You know what the response is? It's not, okay, today I'm gonna fix it. The response is to go to your father and say, daddy, I've grown cold. I've grown cold. I, these things seem commonplace to me. And I know they're not, but they seem that way to me. And the best thing about our God and the best thing about this gospel, it never wanes in power. The best thing about the Rockies is that when you get there, whether you look at them or not, they have been strong and steady all day. And that's what the gospel is like. And that's what our God is like, that even if it's your first time or your millionth time, when you go back to God and say, let me see this good news with fresh eyes again. This God of ours never grows tired telling you how great his love for you is in the gospel of his son. That is a good, good, great news for us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, it will take forever. It will take eternity for us to truly understand, God, all that you did in sending your son. It will take us forever to explore the bounty and all that Jesus purchased for us through his work, through his death, through his resurrection. 
And God, I would ask you that you would save this church from becoming a group of people who grow tired of the best news in history. God, that you would save me from being someone who thinks because I talk about it, because I preach about it, means I genuinely love it. God, would you save us from missing out on the best news you've ever given? God, we confess that often it's because we don't understand, God, who you are. God, we don't understand our sin. We don't understand all that Christ has done. We don't understand the response it requires. But God, today, would you give us joy in the fact that the God who we've wronged has found a way to bring us back. And that Christmas is a celebration of gifts. And the chief gift being God, your son. The chief gift being you would not leave us to ourselves, but you came and you found us and you did all that was required. God, save us from being a people who grow bored with the most precious thing. Give us hearts that want to sing. Give us hearts that receive your grace. Give us hearts that are in love because we've seen how great your love is for us. God, we cannot do anything about that, God. It is only your spirit that can change the heart. So God, we'd ask, do it now. God, give us eyes to see. Let me see Jesus and how great he actually is. Let me see. God, thank you that he will never disappoint. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.